is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, the Foreign Secretary on the fall of Gaddafi. I've always been confident it would work out. The best thing of all is if this is Libyan-owned and Libyan-led. And the first wave of military job cuts with more to come. There are going to be further redundancies. We'll look at how we handle that based on the lessons we learned from this first tranche. One of our key priorities will be to do that in a way that does not affect our current operation. Headlines. Almost 1,900 servicemen and women have been told today that they're being made redundant. 750 of those redundancies are compulsory. In the RAF, around 930 jobs are going half volunteered. 70% of the 920 redundancies in the army are voluntary. A flag's been raised marking the transfer of repatriations of fallen troops back to RAF Bryce Norton. Ceremonies are returning to the Oxfordshire base four years after they were moved to RAF Lynham. An inquest into the death of a soldier described as a hero has found he was unlawfully killed. Private Thomas Sefton of 1st Battalion, the Mercian Regiment, died in hospital in the UK after being injured in a roadside bomb in Afghanistan. And a major international meeting on the future of Libya has been taking place in Paris. David Cameron's hosting the conference along with the French President Nicolas Sarkozy. Libya's new leaders are meeting representatives from 60 different countries and organisations. It's been a busy 15 months for William Hague. He arrived at the Foreign Office promising Britain would remain a major international player, engaging with emerging powers as well as traditional partners like the United States. But then came the Arab Spring, the defining world event of the last year, leading to Britain's role in the military operation over Libya. Now Tripoli has fallen and Colonel Gaddafi remains in hiding. That operation's moving into territory that's hard to predict. When I spoke to the Foreign Secretary, I started by asking him if he'd ever feared NATO's operation would end in failure. No, I was, I've always been confident it would work out. I have said throughout that we don't put a time limit on it, that time was against Gaddafi. I was often asked through June, July, beginning of August by people interviewing me, isn't this a stalemate, isn't it a deadlock? And I said, no, the position of the Gaddafi regime is not viable anymore and time will run out for Gaddafi. We just don't know how long it will take. And that is how it has turned out. In August, of course, things have moved on extremely quickly, although it's not over yet in Libya. Uh, So we never put a time limit on on it from the beginning. Uh, We have got involved in Libya for the sake of our own national interest. Think of what would have happened for Europe and and this country if Gaddafi had overrun the whole of his of Libya, again, with uncontrolled migration into southern Europe, with terrible humanitarian consequences for the whole of of North Africa. So we took that action in our own national interest and in the interests of international peace and security, for which we have a global responsibility as a member of the United Nations Security Council. And this week we have the Paris Conference, which will be looking at ways within the international community to move things forward, to to build a new democracy within Libya. What role do you think Britain should be playing in that? Well, again, we have a a leading role. It's the United Kingdom and France that have made a lot of the running uh, on what has happened in in Libya. We have driven things forward in the UN Security Council and militarily as well. And our forces have done the most fantastic, 
job uh, in the air and at sea uh, over the last six months in relation to Libya. We couldn't have done what we've done without the help of the United States as well. That has been crucial. But Britain and France have played a leading role. And I think that is a reminder that we still have that leading role, uh, both in European affairs and in global affairs. Having said that, the National Transitional Council is now saying they don't want the UN to be actively com involved in security, in helping them with security. Are you concerned about that kind of reaction at this stage? No, I'm not concerned about that. I, I welcome that if they think that they can do that. Uh, the best thing of all is for this... What if they can't do that? Well, let's see. So far, the signs are good. Uh, it's important to do contingency planning in case they can't manage it uh, on their own. Uh, but the NTC have shown good leadership in Libya. When I visited Benghazi in June, they'd started off with a difficult situation, but they had certainly worked out how to administer Benghazi and eastern Libya. They're now seeking to do the same in Tripoli and the West. And the best thing of all is if this is, continues to be Libyan-owned and libyan led. After all, the whole purpose is to let Libyans decide their own future, not to have a, an international presence there. You said it's important to have contingency plans if they can't manage the security on their own. What would be the nature of those contingency plans? Well, the United Nations does have to do some planning, and it is giving a lot of thought uh, to, uh, in New York. Uh, to what would happen in different scenarios, a UN delegation, a UN mission, uh, will be going there at an early stage. The Secretary-General has been speaking about that this week. Uh, but everything should be in consultation with and in close cooperation with the Libyans themselves. In terms of developing and helping support emerging democracies, what do you think our position is and the, the, the stand we should take if what actually emerges is those democracies actually don't match up to our standards? Well, they won't be exactly the same as us. Uh, we are not going to see the Westminster Parliament arise uh, suddenly in other countries. It took hundreds of years to develop our system of democracy in this country. But how do you decide what's good enough? Well, they must decide what's good enough. We have to respect the culture of other countries and work with the grain of other societies. And I think this is a lesson of recent years. You, we, can, we can achieve an enormous amount in the world, but we can't just drop a fixed form of democracy from 30,000 feet and say, look, that's what you've got to have. Uh, it has to be a form of democracy that is in keeping with that society. And sometimes that means it will take some time to develop. Of course, we want to see the essential attributes of a democratic society, a free media, free institutions in a, in a strong civil society, the ability of people to vote as they wish in elections with a reasonable choice uh, to vote from, not just a ruling party that has it all its own way. These are essential attributes of a democratic system, but it can take time to strengthen and entrench them. In five years' time, we look at Libya, what do you think will be the signs of success in terms of our campaign there? Well, the signs of success in five years would be that it is a, a free, democratic and inclusive country, uh, that it w will have healed the, the wounds of this terrible conflict they've been through over the last six months, and that there will be an economy, along with other nations and economies across North Africa, uh, that is actually able to trade more freely with Europe that isn't a pariah state as it has been for so long under Gaddafi. 
and that is uh, around the Mediterranean with southern European countries, part of building the prosperity of North Africa and Europe together. That is what we want to see, a closer partnership between European nations and the nations of North Africa and the Middle East. In terms of Gaddafi himself, as we're speaking now, we don't know where he is. If through our British intelligence or NATO's intelligence we find out where he is, given that the regime has now fallen, are we still legitimate in targeting the area where he would be with bombs? Well, um, I can't go into detail about intelligence matters, and our, our policy on targeting has always been the same. We don't, we're not targeting individuals. We do target command and control if you systems to be in that kind and, of area. and structures. So really, it's where people are and what they're doing, not who they are, uh, that can make them targets. And, and that's been the case all along. Uh, of course, we want to see Colonel Gaddafi, as I've often said, that our ideal is that he answers for his crimes to the International Criminal Court. Uh, but it will be up to Libyans to decide uh, what to do about him or to do with him if they do find him on Libyan soil. As you have always said, it is, it is up to the Libyans to decide, but what w would you like to see happen to him? Oh, my number one um, preference is that he answers um, for the, the International Criminal Court indictment to which he is now subject. Uh, that, of course, is, is top of our list. In turning to Syria, can you understand why, when we talk about, as has been said in the past by previous foreign secretaries, of an ethical foreign policy, why we choose at the moment not to intervene on, along the same arguments we use in Libya to protect civilians? I can very much understand the questions about this. There is absolutely unacceptable bloodshed in Syria. It looks like more than 2,000 people have been killed uh, while trying to protest against the, the government there, uh, that people are imprisoned, tortured. Uh, it, it is a truly unacceptable and appalling piece of behavior uh, by the Assad regime that has lost legitimacy, and we have said that he should go. Uh, so I do very much understand the question, but this is a very important point. The answer, I think, is very important, uh, which is that we can act when it is legal, when there is international support, and support not just among Western nations. I think this is an important lesson, too, of the last 15 years or so, that when we act outside Europe, well, then we need to be acting with partners from elsewhere in the world, preferably from the Arab world, if it is in the Middle East. In the case of Libya, the Arab League issued a call for help, for intervention, for a no-fly zone, and so on. And the Arab nations and African nations supported the UN Security Council resolution, which has been the basis of our action in Libya. There is no such call or support in the case of Syria. Uh, and so we're not able to do, even if we wanted to do, the sorts of things we've done in the case of Libya. That means we have to use other means, uh, economic pressure, diplomatic sanctions, uh, our own language and that of our partners. We're working now on getting a resolution at the United Nations Security Council to increase the pressure on the Assad regime. So we have to be constrained uh, by international law, uh, and by what we can work with other nations to achieve. And in terms of how you see Britain and its foreign policy strategy, do you think that our involvement in Libya and the way we've handled that sets a, a new way of intervening internationally, that it's a, a restrained intervention, that actually we can't afford to do, for example, another Afghanistan, but the way we've done Libya so far actually works? 
Well, we must make a success of Afghanistan as well. In Afghanistan, the circumstances are different. But yes, there are in Libya some of the factors that I think are that, that point the way to how we will work in the future, with closely with partners like France, uh, for instance, militarily, and like some of the Arab uh, states we worked so closely with diplomatically. So with a network of strong alliances, uh, not just in Europe, but in the Arab world as well. Um, in this case, uh, without Western troops actually being boots on the ground in any significant numbers, uh, these might well be the characteristics of what we do in the future. But I stress that each case is different, and so it is too early to try to uh, deduce hard and fast rules about uh, diplomatic initiatives or future military interventions from the one case of Libya. It has some pointers, though, to the future. Mm. We're coming up to the 10th anniversary of 9-11. In the past 10 years since that event, do you think our security in Britain and internationally has it improved or got worse? Well, I think it has improved, and what we've been doing in Afghanistan is crucial. What our forces have achieved in Afghanistan is central to our own national security. Uh, there is no doubt that al-Qaeda, the core of al-Qaeda, has been very much weakened uh, and very, uh, has suffered very serious damage and disruption in recent years, and that's very closely connected to what we're doing in Afghanistan. Imagine if we hadn't taken any action in Afghanistan, uh, and there continued to be terrorist bases that could threaten the rest of the world in Afghanistan. Uh, so that work is very important. I think it has contributed to making this country safer, but it doesn't mean we can relax. At a time of austerity, at a time of cuts, how do you generally see Britain's place in the world militarily? What do you think we should be able to achieve? Well, I think it's a continuing strong role. I, I think the the review of the defence budget and the security and defence review that we undertook last year uh, has been one of the most difficult things we've had to do in government, one of the most painful things we've had to do in government. Uh, it's really my defence colleagues, the Minister of Defence, of course, who have been leading all of that, but across government we've, uh, we've taken a close interest in it. Of course, I have as Foreign Secretary. We were left this huge overhang, this huge overcommitment to the defence budget uh, that we've had to try to sort out. And I think we took the right decisions in that review. This country still packs a very strong punch in the world, and we must continue to do so. Uh, and in that light, what kind of tribute would you like to pay to the armed forces? Well, uh, I see, as Foreign Secretary, what happens in Afghanistan, which I've visited Afghanistan several times already as Foreign Secretary. I've seen on a daily basis uh, what our armed forces have achieved uh, over Libya. Uh, and it is astonishing. It is remarkable. This country could not do for an hour with, without that professionalism, without that dedication, and I'm always proud to say, wherever I go in the world, whichever foreign government I am talking to, that we in Britain continue to have the best armed forces in the world. And I think across most of the world they are still respected as such. 
The Foreign Secretary, William Hague, and there's a full version of that interview on our website, bfbs.com. To discuss that, I'm joined in the studio by BFBS's Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee, and from Westminster, the Conservative MP and former Army Officer, Patrick Mercer. Hello to both of you. Hello, Kate. Hello, Hello Chris. Uh, Patrick Mercer, William Hague said there had ne- he never doubted the uprising in Libya would succeed. That the, It didn't sound like he was that confident a few weeks ago, though, when he suggested Gaddafi could stay and if he gave up power? Kate, I think, um, as Clausewitz said, war is the province of confusion, and to, and to uh, try and belabour uh, the Foreign Secretary with comments that he, he, he made when circumstances were different, uh, I think is probably unfair and unnecessary. Um, the fact remains that the, the Libyan people seem to be on the verge, if they haven't already achieved it, of having liberated themselves largely with help from NATO and with from other Western forces in a way that is encouraging and different and, I hope, sets a pattern for these sorts of events in the future. I, I was particularly, tu- particularly uh, taken by, by William Hague's statement when I think you asked him uh, whether whether NATO troops should get involved or not, and the and the Libyans had said no, and that William Hague said, well, actually, that was a great sign because it meant the Libyans were capable of doing it themselves. I think I I, I think that's that's a bit of a result, personally. Mm-hmm. Christopher, do you think that's a realistic pro- uh, position? It's realistic, um, but as you know, as, as as Patrick was saying there, you 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 cannot hold people to their initial assessments. After what is it, Patrick, in the first 15 minutes of war, all the rules change. Um, But what we have to look at is is, is the tasks for these people. The RAF, for example, have been flying in. Uh, millions of, uh, of of dollars worth of Libyan currency to get people pl- paid, to get water on, to get uh, uh, services together, uh, that becomes important. The problem, say, for example, in Tripoli Airport is controlled by the uh, Zintanis from uh, from the mountains. You've got the uh, the Berbers are controlling the square, um, and you've got the, the banks, the ports, uh, and Tripoli, controlled by the Maserati. Now, these are practical things from their own point of view. And so when the MTC said, well, OK, we will, or the NTC say we, we will be able to control this, or we would like help perhaps with the training of police forces, etc., um, everything will hinge, and perhaps on the next, I don't know, perhaps the next seven days, for example, they're going to extend the deadline on cert. You know that it's supposed to be Saturday. Saturday deadline for Yeah, they're going to extend that for a week. Everything suggests they're going to. They think Gaddafi now is in Bani Walid. If he is, that's where they're going to get him. If they get him in the next, say, 48 hours, 72 hours, they can turn around to the people in cert and say, look, there's your man. Mm. The other side of it, the negotiations that are going on now, probably need another few days to come to something. Now, if they can pull that off and actually have the gates of CERT open because, A, they've gone into Bani Walid and they've got Gaddafi, or they've done the negotiations, then the NTC gets a huge international credibility, and that reflects yes. on their own people. So you talk about this extension on the deadline. Patrick, how long do you think this kind of limbo situation can go on in Libya? I, th- I think it can... <clears throat> excuse me, kid. I think, he, I think Christopher's made some extremely good points there, and I think it can go on as long as it takes. I'm sorry, that, that doesn't sound like a particularly precise answer, but you know, this isn't a precise situation. I think that anything that can be done, any form of realpolitik, 
um, that needs to be brought to play here, which can avoid bloodshed. Well, certainly the options have got to be looked at, and if they've got to be put in play for days or weeks, then so be it. Um, the rebels, I beg your pardon, the government's position, or the former government's position, is now very difficult uh, in, in the pockets of resistance that now remain. However, they can still put up a damn good fight and kill a lot of people. That's got to be avoided. And if that's got to be avoided by, if that can be avoided by a bit of patience, so be it. Uh, Chris, what do you think needs to happen for the National Transitional Council to properly be able to claim victory? Um, well, first and foremost, to, to get in there and see if, the, if that's where Gaddafi is. Gaddafi is the symbol of victory, isn't he? I mean, what happens Indeed. to him I mean, after ca- that uh, is, is another matter. The fall of Sirte wouldn't be enough, then? Uh, the fall of Sirte is like, quite likely to be hastened if they can actually get uh, Gaddafi himself. And these things have to come together. But victory means being able to run the country with things and apparatus that they don't, haven't had before. For example... Um, <coughs> An independent judiciary. Someone for the people can say, OK, we're pulling this together. Uh, everything we do, we're heading for elections in September. Perhaps those elect- elections are not going to happen until next year. Give it time. Give it time. We've given it a lot of time here, and we're going to have to give it a long, long time. I reckon we'll be back here next year and saying, a year on, have they actually got it quite right yet? Gentlemen, stay with us. BFBS SIPREP. Well, in that interview, the Foreign Secretary described our armed forces as astonishing and remarkable. But almost 1,900 service personnel have been told today their military careers are coming to an end. The Army and the RAF have announced details of the first phase of their redundancy programme. Our reporter James Hurst joins me now in the studio. Uh, James, first of all, what's going? who's going exactly? Well, 920 people from the Army, 72% of them volunteered. They put themselves forward for redundancy from the RAF 930. 30, almost exactly the same figure, 48% of them were volunteers. Now, these figures are actually about 8 to 9% lower than the original targets that were set out in the spring. The idea throughout has been not frontline forces. You'll remember anybody in receipt of operational allowance protected. Uh, but the RAF it does include flying the flying training pipeline and weapons support officer training routes. That they were actually notified earlier in the year, and if they've not already transferred or left, they're included in these redundancies. For the Army, 144 Gurkhas, and only eight of them were volunteers. And when will those earmarks for redundancy leave the forces exactly? It is a six-month notice period if people express an interest, volunteered. Twelve months for non-volunteers. They can apply to leave sooner if they want. There are processes ahead, including resettlement support for, for things like how to get a new job. But yeah, six to twelve months, basically. Uh, and the service, as you say, they asked for volunteers earlier in the year, but around 40% of the redundancies announced today are compulsory. Why is that? Well, the services always made clear this is a compulsory programme. So those who were allowed to volunteer were only in specific areas where they felt they needed to make reductions. Now, some of these areas, some of these pools were oversubscribed with volunteers. Other areas were undersubscribed. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, those uh, Gurkhas being made, made redundant, you know, it, that is because they're seen as particularly overmanned. For those who didn't apply but have been made redundant, in both the Army and the RAF, there is an appeals process if people think they, their case hasn't been properly considered. And there is a 
theoretical, at least, opportunity to transfer to other jobs, even across the services. So where there are gaps that do need filling, if you think you have the skills or could have the skills to move into those, you can apply. But we do know all three forces are slimming down. So while that is being offered to people, it's being offered, I think, with some caution. And for those that are being made redundant today, what do they need to do exactly? Each person should be informed either in person or on the phone, and they should be given as part of that process, a redundies guide. Mm-hmm. First thing is, read it. Um, the next thing is, certainly within the army, you're being asked to speak to a unit admin officer, dot the I's and cross the T's. I, I, I understand it's a similar process within the RAF. Apart from that, I think read that guide. Take stock and, of course, talk to your families because it affects them as well. It is a change of life, not just a change of job. And the Royal Navy? Yes, they are going through the same process. They are just on a slightly different timetable. Uh, At the end of this month, they will announce, we think, 1,600 redundancies. Right. Well, Christopher Lee is still with me, as is Patrick Mercer. James, stay here as well, please. Um, Patrick Mercer, we've been told those leaving the army will get the same resettlement package that they would have had if they'd retired. What do you get exactly? <laughs> well, um, I, can, I can only speak from uh, from having been a commanding officer and through the fact that I went through it myself. My redundancy package um, in, involved starting literally the day I left the army as a reporter for the BBC, uh, which worked very nicely. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, no, no retraining great. for you then, Patrick. Well, no, 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 re- no re- I didn't. I, I chose not to take it. But um, those soldiers and officers uh, who um, dis- were discharged or took redundancy during my time in command were given a a very good package where a specific uh, trade or trades could be followed and training could be taken up or indeed individuals such as myself when when I not not when I was commanding but when I when I decided to go there is this it doesn't seem there's any kind of financial support in terms of you know housing or education or anything like it just simply seems like training and job interview technique is it um, I, I, I'm on shaky ground here because things may have changed since my time. In my time, the, you, your redundance, a big pardon, sorry, your, uh, your severance payment uh, helped con- was designed to allow you to buy housing or, or to put a deposit down, a substantial deposit, deposit down on housing. So you've, you've got a lump sum of money, which, of course, you could commute some of your pension, if you wish, to increase that. I, I chose not to, but others did. Um, I believe that things have changed for the better since in terms of preferential treatment, in terms of schooling, health care, etc. But essentially, the, the serviceman or servicewoman gets training in, the, in this, the area in which they're involved, or they can take up employment, as I did, which is, which is offered, and for a limited period of time, quite legitimately, draw two salaries, both an army or a services char- uh, salary and the firm or business for which they work. I suppose this is the thing that we'll, we'll be watching, isn't it, James, is that exactly those that, that who are compulsorily made redundant, how they're treated in terms of... I mean, it's a massive change of life. Um, being made redundant in itself is bad enough, but when you've been in the armed forces, the actual change of life, the way you live, is, is quite considerable, isn't it? Yes, and uh, it's funny, I've been writing various scripts about this today and, and, and thinking, actually, even for those who applied... You know, it is still Christopher going doesn't to agree. be. He's frowning at my big, suggestions big here. News. <laughs> no, I, oh, oh, I'm, I'm talking s- about is you know you're, you're in a certain yeah. kind of okay. uh, environment, aren't you? And where things are taken things care of. That- other people wouldn't do. That's very important mm. as well. But we talk but about the transition about the, to civilian yeah, life being difficult for people. So if you're being made redundant, then my point is, is that, that that in itself is a double whammy, isn't it? It is. It is a bit of a whammy. But let's 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 put it in some sort of perspective. 
the majority of people in the services, certainly in as, uh, as ratings or uh, other ranks, don't actually stay in the services for that long. Mm. It's not as if they're doing sort of their 20-year men or 30-year men or uh, whatever. The two acts, the two uh, laws, if you like, the govern, for example, how you're paid, one assumes that you might have been, uh, you might be allowed uh, uh, pensionable rights from 1975. Uh, yeah, 1975. There ain't many like that. The other assumes it was from 2005, 2006. And so when you start bringing these things together, yeah. you think, well, you know, five, six years, it was an experience, and then you're out. I don't know anybody around here, I bet everybody's listening reads us. Uh, uh, and they're saying, listen, uh, to quote them, uh, before you volunteer to get out, just think about but, it. It's pretty rough on the outside at the but, moment but because there aren't that many jobs. Yeah, but 40% of today's redundancies, they didn't want to go, did they? You can't, you can't sort of argue with those figures. Um, on what basis were the decisions made? What, on, for the people who volunteered to go? Well, for both. For well, OK, it is a totally complex thing. It is not simply saying, well, I'm not sure we need the, you know, the fifth Royal Jocks at the moment or, or we're changing our tactics or whatever. It is so complex that you will actually, for example, look down at a, at a bandsman and you'll say, right, we need 11 bandsmen uh, that have got so much qualifications, they've been in for X number of years, please can we have some volunteers for that? It is that complex. It, it, the other thing is, this is only the beginning. James? I was going to say, it is a huge jigsaw, and I think it's notable that the next tranche of army redundancies they had set a date for, and they've now taken that date out of the calendar. It's being delayed while they work out exactly what they've got to do. The are furious about it, aren't they? Pa- Patrick Mercer, in the longer term, what impact will these redundancies have? W- will service personnel have to work harder to bridge the gap, or will the forces simply have to do less, do you think? Gosh, Kate, what a difficult question to answer. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've been in battalions uh, where redundancies have occurred in the past, and um, interestingly, people either transfer to other cap badges, as we've already mentioned, or, or you get on with it. What I think is much more worrying was that just before the House rose in July, there was an announcement by the Secretary of State for Defence about further service personnel reductions, which in terms of the Army announced a reduction uh, with a target of 2020 of reducing from 102,000 down to about 82,000. Now, that in itself was was terribly worrying, but uh, the Ministry of Defence has bruited it about that combat units wholesale combat units will be reduced and disbanded. So, for instance, there have stories have been appearing about the disappearance of, for instance, the Coldstream Guards, three Royal, uh, two Royal Anglian, five, five Royal Regiment of Scotland, etc., etc. Um, these sorts of things really worry me. Of course there's fat in the armed forces. Of course the Ministry of Defence has, has got to make cuts. But combat personnel? combat power, bayonets, ships, aircraft, at the moment when things have never been more unstable or more febrile. That, that, I, I just and I find it difficult to get my head around this one. And on that point, we must leave it today. That's it for this week. If you have any views on redundancy or any other subject, do get in touch. Sitrep at bfbs.com. My thanks to Patrick Mercer, uh, Christopher Lee and Paul Osborne, who's produced this programme for the last year. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This is Zip Rap on BFBS.